In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-34, we established the fact that uh, not only is Christ raised from the dead, but that his resurrection secures our resurrection. So we can be just as certain of our future as we are of saying Christ is risen. The next question that uh, may seem logical to ask then is, well, what will it be like in the new creation when we are resurrected? Uh, What will we be like in the new creation? And this is the question that our passage addresses. Um, But it's important to see that Paul isn't necessarily responding to someone who has a genuine inquiry. Uh, He's still refuting those who want to deny the resurrection of the body. And that's why in verse 36 he calls them a foolish person. This person's argument most likely went like something like this. How can there be a resurrection of the body when we know that when a person dies their body decays and eventually it returns to dust so there's uh, there's no body left to resurrect no body left to resurrect so if there's any kind of resurrection it must be spiritual a non-material existence in in another spiritual realm many years ago I went to the concert of a a popular Christian singer and uh, at one point in the concert uh, where he inserted a a teaching time he had the entire audience reciting after him I am a spirit who lives in a body who has a soul I am a spirit who lives in a body who has a soul. However, he wasn't teaching us biblical ideas in that. He was actually teaching us pagan Greek ideas. The Corinthian Christians, much like um, us today, were influenced by the pagan religious ideas around them. These religions tended to see the, uh, the physical, material body as being almost as a prison in which our true spiritual selves are trapped. And so the the goal of our enlightenment, uh, our spiritual growth, is to eventually be be free of the material world and free of these bodies and to be liberated into this purely spiritual dimension. So this uh, the Jewish biblical idea of a future physical resurrection, a bodily resurrection, was uh, was seen by followers of these religions as being base or primitive. Uh, they wanted something higher or more spiritual than that. And, uh, and the Corinthian Christians had allowed that kind of thinking to creep into their church and to shape their thinking. Now, there's a lesson for us in that. While we may think that we can hold worldly ideas parallel to our Christian doctrines, we'll find that that inevitably our doctrine will be uh, distorted 
will be shaped by the world's thinking. And before we know it, uh, we end up denying crucial Christian doctrines. As the Corinthians were in danger of in regard to the the resurrection. Uh, In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul takes quite a forceful approach uh, to this issue. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Rather than having the thoughts of the world shape how we understand Jesus Christ, the opposite must happen. That The gospel of Jesus must be the lens through which we interpret and view and understand and assess the world's ideas. That's why Paul calls those who are trying to use the world's logic to deny the resurrection of the body foolish, because they were using the world's reasoning rather than biblical wisdom. And that's why the first thing Paul does is he takes them straight to the teaching of Jesus. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul is recalling Jesus' words here. Jesus answered them. This is uh, his disciples who had reported to him that uh, there were some Greeks who wanted to see him. Uh, He said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The, uh, The glorification that Jesus is speaking of here is his death and the subsequent resurrection. The greatest display of the glory of the Son of Man is that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's at the cross that we see the love and grace and mercy of God displayed at its brightest. His glory God's glory is magnified at the cross so that we can see it most clearly. But this is a a glory that Jesus doesn't keep to himself. It's a glory that he shares. His death and resurrection is the means through which this glory is given to others. The the seed here, uh, the grain of wheat, is himself. The death of his own body is the grain of wheat that, is, uh, that falls to the earth, that is planted in the ground. And the result is much fruit. Through his redeeming death and resurrection, he will give new life to many. Paul wanted to uh, remind the Corinthians of this teaching of Jesus that uh, he uses in this analogy. A seed must be planted if it's going to produce life. This, uh, this bag of beans that I bought about five years ago has still been sitting in my shed and is still 
a bag of seeds. They're on their own, so, so to speak, because I, I never got around to planting them in the ground. Uh, in fact, um, in preparing this, I thought, maybe I will stick some in the ground, and then I did that, and I looked on the back and realised it's completely the wrong time of year to plant beans, uh, so I've got to wait six months before I actually plant them. But that's, uh, that's an aside. If I plant them in the ground at the right time of the year, of course, something amazing will happen. The, the seed will break down, it will disintegrate, it will, it will die, but a brand new plant will grow out of it. And that, that plant will produce, I hope, dozens of beans. The plant that the seed produces will, will look very different to the seed, yet the seed and the plant are actually one. They're of the one substance. But unless the seed dies by being buried in the ground, it will never produce the plant. Jesus applied this analogy to his death and resurrection because, as we saw last week, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's true for him is also true for us. His resurrection indicates to us what our resurrection will be like. As Jesus was in his resurrected body, so will we be. But like him, the vast majority of us, uh, unless uh, Jesus returns before we die, uh, we will experience the life of bodily resurrection after we too have been sown through our own bodily death. This is what Paul is bringing out in verses 38 to 41. That in our resurrection we will be in some way the same as we are now, in that the seed and the plant are really the one, but in some way different. And the difference will be essentially a difference of glory. Now verses 38 and 39 recall the creation account in which God created both plants and living creatures according to their kinds. In the way God designed nature, each, each kind or species reproduces according to its species. Uh, a fish doesn't produce a cow. A, a tree doesn't produce grass. There's no confusion of species, no hybrids of human and animal or human and plant, uh, and especially uh, human and other creatures because human beings were made not simply according to our kind, according to our species, but we are made in the image and likeness of God. There's something unique about a, a, a human being in creation that reflects the nature of God, both spiritually and bodily. So this goodness of God's design of a human being will be preserved in the resurrection. We won't become some other kind of creature. We will still be truly and fully human. So there will be a direct correlation between 
what we are now and what we will be then. Think of Jesus in his resurrection. The risen Jesus was still Jesus of Nazareth. The same Jesus who was born of Mary, who grew up in Galilee, who walked the streets with his disciples. He was the same Jesus who was crucified and buried. His resurrected body still bore the scars of his crucifixion. He still ate and drank and received sustenance from food and drink in his body. So Jesus retained and he still does his full humanity and so so will we. He still retained his full personality and so will we. When, when we see one another in the new creation, we will recognise each other as those that we've known in this life. We will, we will keep the memories of this life and our fellowship together then will in some way be shaped by the fellowship that we've had with one another in this life. That's something that makes church really significant for us because it's not merely a foretaste of that time. Uh, Our fellowship today uh, in church, as church, is something that will actually contribute to our fellowship uh, in that day. Then verses 40 to 41, also recalling the creation account, uses the heavenly bodies to illustrate that there will uh, not just be a correlation between now and then, but there will also be a profound difference. In these verses he emphasised not so much sameness in kind, but difference in glory. While the sun, moon and stars are all uh, heavenly bodies, there's a distinct difference between them. For example, we can spend hours gazing at the stars at night, but only a few seconds of gazing at the sun will ruin our eyes. Why? Because the sun difference differs from the stars in its brightness, in its glory. Romans 8.18 tells us the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now that's the ESV there. Uh, The NIV translates the end of this verse as the glory that is to be revealed in us. And and the Greek grammar actually allows for both translations, uh, revealed to us or revealed in us, and both are actually true. On that day there will be a glory revealed to us, the full glory of Jesus himself, no longer veiled, a face-to-face but there will also be a glory revealed in us because when we, when we see the glory of Jesus, his glory will cause a transformation 
in us. And so we will reflect his glory, I guess like the, uh, the moon reflects the light of the sun. The glory that we see in ourselves then will be unlike anything we've seen or known in this life. A, a glory that we've only had glimpses of. A glory that, as I mentioned last week, if we actually saw the fullness of it in this life, we'd be, we'd be tempted to fall down and worship one another. So, while, while the seed is one with the plant that comes from it, the, the seed contains uh, in itself all of the DNA required to be that plant, there's also a great difference between the seed and the plant because the plant is far more glorious than the little kernel of the seed. We see in verses 42 to 44 four key differences between what we are now bodily and what we will be then bodily. Firstly, now we are perishable. Then we will be imperishable. Uh, we kind of know what that means, don't we? Probably at this time, particularly, we've been thinking about uh, what foods are perishable and what foods are imperishable, especially if you've been stocking up your pantry um, in case there's a, there's a lockdown. In this life, we're perishable. Our bodies are subject to decay, to disease, to ageing, to death. But our bodies then will be imperishable because the, the corruption that came with the curse will be removed. There will be no more coronavirus pandemics. Maybe we'll still have the coronavirus, but the coronavirus will actually do good to our bodies rather than cause harm. Secondly, now we die in dishonour, verse 43, then we will be raised in glory or no glory. We do our best in this life, don't we, to, to carry ourselves with a sense of dignity. Uh, we dress up. We we make our bodies look better than we know they are in reality. Ever since Adam and Eve made clothes from fig leaves, we, we've known a sense of shame about our bodies because being naked means being unable to hide. Uh, it means being completely vulnerable to others. Uh, even though at, at this time uh, I'm spending most of my time at home, uh, seeing physically mainly just by my family and uh, if you visited the Creek household you see us sitting around um, in our pyjamas and um, not really uh, worried too much about our appearance but I've still got to shave and wear a shirt uh, as I'm doing this service, so that I still have a sense of dignity about me. But the reality is, the time will come, the, the, the moment will come when all of us will lie, lay naked on a slab with 
all of our dignity stripped from us. But whatever our bodies will look like in the resurrection, there will be no more shame. We won't need cosmetic coverings or enhancements because we will know a a physical glory, a physical dignity as we are restored to our pristine creational goodness. Thirdly, now we are weak, but then we will be powerful. The curse on the earth brought through Adam meant that work became toilsome. He would eat his food by the sweat of his brow. Instead of ruling over the earth and subduing it, the elements of creation tend to rule over us and subdue us and we become weakened and weary by life. Uh, In this life, sleep is necessary because the toils and troubles of life make us exhausted. Literally, it means empty. Will we sleep in the new creation? Possibly. But it won't be because we are exhausted or drained. It'll be because we're free to rest. We're comfortable in knowing that the sovereign God is still in charge of the universe and even when we are unconscious in sleep, we'll be able to rest fully because we won't need to feel like we always have to check up on God to make sure he's doing his job. The the word here for power is uh, the word dynamis. So it speaks not so much about uh, an authority kind of power, but a dynamic, uh, enlivened, energetic power. We will have a a strength and a vitality that will mean we'll we'll still work, just as Adam was called to work uh, in Eden. Yet our work will no longer be toilsome and burdensome. Instead, it will be energising and life-giving. And fourthly, uh, now our bodies are natural, then our bodies will be spiritual. Now, this is possibly where, through... Uh, misinterpretation and through listening to non-biblical ideas uh, the misunderstanding has come to the Corinthians and maybe to us that life then will be spiritual rather than physical but but Paul isn't contrasting uh, non-material with material here Uh, the word here translated natural is the Greek word psychikos, from which we get our word psychology. And we know that psychology is the study of the non-physical element of our humanity, what people uh, might call the soul. This word psychikos uh, was often used to describe a person who, who is led by their own passions and desires. Uh, their own their own psychology, so to speak, um, what they 
feel what they want for themselves and, and that, how that then shapes their behaviour. Paul had used this word earlier in the letter when he said, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So he uses the same contrast there in regard to um, whether a person is able to uh, accept or comprehend uh, the gospel message. Uh, the contrast here clearly isn't between physical and non-physical, material and non-material. What, what is a natural person? Well, it's someone who's led by their own desires, who allows their body to rule over them. What is a spiritual person? Well, it's someone who's led by the Spirit, who hears what the Spirit is saying, because their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and they are ruled by Him. These contrasting images give us some limited idea of what we will be like in the new creation. But in verses 45 to 49, we're told that ultimately, rather than trying to work out what we will be like, we should actually be thinking about who we will be like. In this creation, we are like the first man, Adam. We are uh, living beings. And the word being here is that word, psychikos, again. Adam was a creature made in the image of God and destined for glory. What he was in Eden was only just the beginning. So much more was in store for him if he had obeyed the creational mandate and ruled over the earth in loving submission to God. If he had uh, lived filled and led by the Spirit, the same Spirit who had given him the breath of life in the first place. Part of his sin was in thinking that he could uh, remain as he was and still achieve dominion over creation on his own, in his own power, following his own desires and will and ambitions rather than uh, the will and desires of the Spirit. He thought that he could attain to glory apart from God. And in that sense, Adam embodies the natural man. When the Lord confronted Adam with his sin, uh, pronouncing the curse that was on him, he said something really significant. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See how the reason why Adam returns to the dust at his death isn't because immediately because he sinned, but because for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. See, Adam was created mortal. His life, both spiritually and bodily, was entirely dependent upon the Spirit's 
life-giving power. He didn't have an immortal body. He didn't have an immortal soul. God alone has immortality. And I know that that may raise some questions for some of you, but hold that thought because we'll unpack that a bit more next week. God's design for Adam was not that he should return to the dust from which he came, but that he, the the man of dust, the man from the earth, should be glorified so that his affinity would not be with the ground from which he came, but with heaven for which he is destined. Now that which Adam should have become is seen in Jesus, the last Adam. Jesus came to fulfil not his own will or desire, but the Father's. But Jesus was so filled with the Spirit that he gave life to those whom he encountered. Jesus declared, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow livers. But I'll say that again. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. See, Jesus had a truly spiritual body. He was a body just as physical as ours, made of the same stuff. He shared our earthly, dusty nature, but the dust of his body was filled with the Spirit. And so his ultimate goal wasn't the ground, but was heaven. Now over, over the centuries, some theologians right across the Protestant, uh, Orthodox and Catholic spectrum have debated the hypothetical question, if humanity had not sinned, would God the Son still have become a human being. Now, from one angle, that might seem like a pointless question because uh, humanity has sinned. But it's a question that uh, can be helpful to ask because it reminds us that Jesus came to do uh, much more than simply save us from the wrath of God that's upon our sin. The ultimate goal of his work was to bring us into the Father's family as adopted children, to be one with the Father in love and purpose, just as he himself is. His high priestly ministry is to provide in himself a propitiation for our sins, but also to open up the curtain and to bring us into the presence of God in the holy place. So his, his incarnation, his taking onto himself our dusty earthly flesh is so that he may take that dusty earthy flesh uh, out of the grave 
and raise it to a place of glory in the Father's presence. And that's been accomplished uh, through uh, his union of his divine nature and his human nature. Uh, In Jesus Christ we see uh, a human being who is one with God. Uh, and, and so in that, in that union, uh, he has accomplished that union on our behalf. See how it's, this is all put in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's, that's our destination. Uh, it's no longer the ground, no longer the earth, no longer the grave. Uh, our citizenship, our destination is heaven. And from it, we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So, while there is uh, some room for speculation, and it's not wrong in itself to wonder and hope, for what the new creation and our, our resurrection bodies will be like, all that really matters is that we will be like him. We will be like Jesus. The Father's goal for you as his child is to be transformed into the image of his one and only Son, Jesus. That's why, that's why we're called to fix our eyes on him as we run the race that's before us, knowing that because of his grace to us, set in motion before the foundation of the world when he foreknew us and he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. So keep gazing on the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ displayed in his, his matchless love to you in the cross declared in power uh, by his resurrection from the dead uh, and the pouring out of his spirit. Uh, Fix your eyes on Jesus because um, the more you get to know Jesus, the the more these, uh, these questions will be answered. You will know what you will be like because if you're like him, get to know him. And you'll find in him your true identity.